0: Actually, you have some better copyright, trademark laws that you know functions
1: get really hard to
0: protect that way. Top of the
1: funnel is distinctiveness. Lower down in the funnel is differentiation.
0: Now, the key to his next step in success in that company, I believe, is to go back to traditional marketing. From Orion X, this is the Marketing Podcast marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs.
1: Hello everybody and happy new year 2023 marketing podcast. Shaheen Khan here with Doug Garnett. How are you, Doug?
0: I'm doing well, Shaheen. Happy New Year.
1: All right. You had a good holidays? I did.
0: I did. They were quite good. We had snow and ice, and I had to drive over the pass with my new snow tires.
1: You know, A guy from Colorado, I love stuff like that. Well, it's a new year, and the new year starts with CES, (laughs) what I call a parade of solutions looking for a problem, but also some really cool stuff. So let's set that up. What was your take? I don't want
0: to quite get into my overall take, but I will i will give you the first headline that really struck me, which came from AP, which is part of their Best of CES 2023 series. And the title is Canine Communication and a Calming <laughs> Pillbo. And my reaction was... Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Um, you know, I remember when CES used to be announcing things like Satellite TV with DirecTV and I mean, all those big you know, oh, industry-shaking announcements of products that were just out there, and now I can get a calming pillow that's uh, apparently connected. Now, that's only one of their series. They had a lot of other stuff, but still.
1: Yeah, my take is that increasingly it's a conference for features, not products that you could go there and see what ingredients you can Mm -hmm. employ in whatever product it is that you're building that actually does have a use case, and this could enhance it. But some of the products that I saw were totally solutions looking for a problem and probably struggling to do so. It's also the case that some of the major consumer electronics stuff has already been invented, and Mm -hmm. the next step function is not quite ready yet. So I saw Mm -hmm. a bunch of AI-oriented stuff that Lots of sensors, lots of IoT, but really not quite there yet. But occasionally see some good stuff. I think IoT is the one that uh,
0: I've seen, you know, struggle the most because I think really when I started going back around 2000, we were already getting IoT things to, you know, come across. There was a lot of hype about them, and you know, they just really haven't taken off yet. A lot of them. Now, there's some consumer IoT, like Fitbit. I guess we could probably call GoPro an example of IoT. Those have done well, but the broad idea of our entire home being connected to the internet, you know, we have learned by now that no, I don't need my dishwasher connected to the internet.
1: Right. It works just fine. <laughs> yeah. And that's the kind of step function that I'm expecting will happen at some point. Mm-hmm. There will come a time when it might make sense to do all of that.
0: Yeah. But I think a little bit of what we're seeing is that it has been endemic in the tech business to over-promise the future today. And I've seen that time after time. I worked for an ad agency at one point that made, videos for HP printers, these futuristic videos, and I used to just hate them because they had all the worst sci-fi elements in them. And yet we're so far from actually being something that anybody could get or even might care about. Because there's this tendency to project, if we could only do this, then that would solve all the world's problems. And you know, once we can do this thing they're projecting, it turns out it doesn't solve all the world's problems. And then we get a realistic view of it instead of what we got in the sci-fi.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking that we need a two-by-two two here because okay. now I have my industry analyst hat on and sure. two-by-twos mm-hmm. are mandatory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what I'm observing is that we used to talk about actual features that were available now, or were already introduced. But the desire to be interesting and be innovative and have a press release on everything constantly pushes the boundaries of that. So on one axis, instead of having it now, you're looking at, I might have it three years from now. And in terms of actual functionality, you start having what I call politely clickbait features. And I think that's the boundary that we're pushing. So now I'm seeing activities that are nonsense feature that is not going to even be available for another five years. And you might... Intrigued, but after a while, I expect that we will all have fatigue. We will have clickbait fatigue.
0: I think we already do with CES. I, th- I mean, I certainly do, because there's been so many extreme promises made. And the extreme promises are made to get attention. Because honestly, it is really hard to get the AP to mention your product unless you make some overtop, you know, promise. But you know, we've gotten to that point now where the promises have gone beyond hey, here's this great communication device that's gonna make your, you know, how you can. Comm- Communicate with your home very different and we've gotten into that stuff that's as soon as we come out with this pair of wirelessly connected shoes world hunger is going to be solved (laughs) and um you know it's just so absurd i you know i sometimes wonder if the bullshit meters in the marketing departments and some of these companies have broken well
1: as long as the metrics are feeding them that way and the metrics like you said is attention ink did i manage to go viral Regardless. A bit of a Emily in Paris tinge in there and There you go. As long as that happens, I don't think anybody cares. And that's unfortunate. I think that's a disservice to marketing, actually.
0: It is a disservice to marketing. We talked a bit in pre-show about gimmicks. And I have, you know, I use the term gimmick to reflect those problems and those solutions in search of a problem. And I've even heard from focus groups on high-tech products that the broad consumer market worries about those too. Everybody has experience with having bought something that three weeks later, they're like, ugh that ain't working you know bought it on somebody's big promise and then they get it home and they're frustrated with it and in this research I did it, you know, people were very clear with the product we had about is this a viable product meaning I'll still love it in a year or is it a gimmick meaning it'll be to the garage sale right away right and, uh, <laughs> you know they were, they were looking for that but on the other hand I think your observation that I like was that the problem with clickbait and memes And marketing for quick bait and memes is that it makes everything into a gimmick. It asymptotically approaches BS. (laughs) (laughs) That was (laughs) the I I think we're pretty close on that asymptotically approaching Uh BS. The difference is really small at this point uh, for (laughs) BS. But I think that is what happens. And I think, you know, that's the one, it is the PR world around CES that's the most frustrating because that's all I feel like we end up hearing about are, you know, these life-changing BS things that I, I think most ordinary people in the U.S. are like yawning. Yeah, yeah. And they'd much rather know what's going to happen on next season's episode of White Lotus than what comes out of CES.
1: Now, this year was also the first big year in person.
0: And I'm sure it really helped him. I guess, you know, just to take this a slight, like, slightly further about this, what we see at CES, though, is not unique to CES only. I think, in fact, we see other places that have this problem as well. It's, you know, in tech, I was thinking it reminds me of Elon Musk's challenge with Tesla right now, which is Elon Musk made tremendous headway for Tesla using his fame right? Absolutely. He could make these on-stage pitches, everything would get covered, you know, so forth and so on. But at some point, you no longer have something to say that's going to get that coverage. And for example, I think Tesla should be out there pitching hard for their charging stations, because they've spent a lot of money building an excellent network of charging stations, and nobody knows about it. I mean, I what I hear from people. They don't even know that they're out there. And yet, yeah. him on stage is not going to get that across. At the same time, Musk has made this big deal about how well we're not going to advertise. Well, guess what? Now, the key to his next step in success in that company, I believe, is to go back to traditional marketing. Advertise right. the charging stations. It's the only way you're going to get that message through in a way that makes sense and that builds your business. So I think that there's, you know, it's gone beyond CES and it's this whole, you know, some of it came from Steve Jobs' success, right? I mean, he did brilliantly with his stage pitches, but too many people try to copy them and lose track of the weaknesses of it.
1: And Jobs wasn't his own personal celebrity representing all of my company's guy. Mm -hmm. He actually used a more scalable model, where he uh-huh. you know, worked with agencies that he knew and trust who could really think with him and yep. build a narrative. Now, I think that Musk does advertise, except that uh-huh. his advertisement is through his own power of celebrity. So he may not be paying for it in an external way, but it's definitely happens. Well, I guess what I'm thinking is that
0: that is absolutely true. And he gets PR, but every version of advertising has limitations on what messages you can get across effectively. And that's what I'm thinking. He's got a limit on what he can say in there and have it communicate out, you know, get broadcast
1: as superb as he is in Mm -hmm. pushing that, kicking that can further and further, and he does brilliantly, yep. uh, definitely a superpower to stay in the news on a daily basis for one reason or another, right? And I think he's among a small class of people who have cracked the code on staying in the news regardless. Yep. But mm-hmm. also, referencing our previous commentary, if you have to be in the news every day, you're going to run out of content at some point, and you are going to asymptotically approach undesirable type of content. (laughs)
0: Yeah, nothing to say. (laughs) Well, that's what, you know, you and I both conjectured off screen that maybe it could be related to why he's over at Twitter now is all of a sudden he's got everybody's attention again, you know, which I can see. I'm not sure it's going well for him, but he's got everybody's attention.
1: I actually think like the jury's out on that, but definitely Mm -hmm. I don't see the amount of clickbait dropping. I think that actually that's the trick. The trick is to turn it into a place where there's a lot of engagement. Mm-hmm. And again, Power of Celebrity can bring some of that to you, as does clickbaity content. But we'll see. Yeah, In my mind, that's unsustainable. But then also a lot of people really don't care about sustainability. They just care about here and now. And as long as they can you know, do one more quarter, maybe that's all that matters. Going back to Steve Jobs, the really fascinating thing with Steve Jobs is he would do
0: his pitch and the next day their ad campaigns would drop. So he had no misconceptions about how far his personal celebrity would take the company. He knew that there was real value in advertising. So they, they Oh, they were hope.
1: extremely well coordinated. Absolutely. So a little bit closer afield yes. in our marketing discussions, there was a conversation about advertising and the mm-hmm. role of In-house versus agency. Okay. Well, first I'll set it up with merging out of CES.
0: The one thing I've found at CES is we once we were pitching them. And what they really wanted us to do is make their CES video for their booth, you know, make this video about this thing. And of course, I went in saying, okay, well, how do we make this compelling, you know, effective, persuasive, and all this? And what I eventually figured out is, no, they just wanted wallpaper for the booth. And so I I coined a term, which is video wallpaper, and it's not meaningless, but that's what it is. It's just wallpaper to fill the booth and make people feel like, oh, there's something going on here. It's pretty good. And you don't worry about actually saying anything. Or putting anything substantive into it. So, with that transition, we have a, a blog post from Dave Trot. That was it's actually from 2017, but he brought it out, you know, again, and I thought it pretty interesting. It has a really kind of a clear metaphor in it about having grown up on a council estate and uh, every few years they would be redecorated and some guy would come around with a big book of wallpaper samples and her mom would choose the wallpaper for each room based on colors and patterns she liked. And he contrasts that with plumbing where When they had problems with the plumbing, the plumber would come around and she's like, yeah, the toilet, it's busted. And, (laughs) you know, step back and the plumber would go do his job and the the like. The hard question a little bit, you and I have spent some time on already is interesting metaphors.
1: What do we take from them for advertising and marketing? So in this kind of setup, is his mom the end user customer or the in-house marketing people or
0: yeah I think in this case her, his mom is the in-house marketing people. Uh-huh. right And so and I think really what he's getting at is this tendency in in-house marketing that an ad you hire an ad agency and you say, well, how do, you know well, here's what we need to do and then the in-house marketing people are picking everything according to their personal likes you know, I see. well, I like this campaign and I don't like that campaign. I mean, I've seen that happen with actors. We had an actor we knew would just rock because he had this husky voice and it really mm. was interesting. You know, he, those voice things matter a lot. A lot for absolutely. People pay attention to you. And the client was really uncomfortable. I don't know. His voice is husky. No, that's the whole point. You know, that's really good. He had everything we needed and he had this husky voice. And in fact, It was a brilliant job for him later because he did, you know, episodes of these national series. Later, he went on some like Law and Order or something like that. And one of the actors turns to him and says, oh, God, I love your commercial and described our commercial. You know, this is when you're like,
1: oh, yeah, that worked. You know that works. <laughs> that's great. But the idea
0: is, you know, it's a lot of times clients are making choices according to their own personal preferences, and I think that's what he's talking about here. Is the bad thing that happens when a client says, "Oh, but I needed to be pretty," and you know, the contrast that Dave Trott makes is that he says plumbing is a very different job to decorating. Decorating had one function, which is the tenant had to like it. Plumbing has a different function; it has to work. And he suggests, in a sense, that you know, advertising has a function it has to work. And that the wrong thing to do with advertising is to approach it as it has to make me happy when you're in the marketing department. And I think that's really what I take away from this as the, his intent.
1: You know, he's trying to make a point and I think it's a very, very valid point. But it's also the case that sometimes people who have been doing something for a long time end up really understanding what the end user customer really wants. Yes. And if you're an inside in-house marketing person who has been in that industry with that customer base for the past n years, and you've been listening actively and Mm -hmm. learning, you sort of become your customer. And there comes a time when if the customer doesn't like it, you naturally won't like it. So Mm -hmm. it's not really your personal taste per se, but your understanding of what the market wants that is Mm -hmm. driving your taste. And that might be okay. And in fact, if you have in-house people like that, you want to take advantage of it.
0: Yeah, I I saw that most, you know, I did, you know, I did tons of DIY product advertising work over my career. And I found that in a lot of the companies which was sold tools and tool related products that the people who were in marketing in those companies all learned to use the products and they all did the work. They all at least were doing some stuff around their house, if not more major. You know, I worked with one company that had a finished carpentry power saw. They all knew it. They all knew it inside and out. And therefore, yeah, I could trust their judgment on, you know, I don't think this is going to work for this reason or that reason. When I was working with Lowe's, very often we would have a guy fly out from corporate, uh, actually not very often, every shoot, who in his job, I was a marketing guy, but his job was to look at every one of our demonstrations from the point of view of, is it believable to somebody who works with their hands? Yeah, and, that's right. You know, it's so much of this stuff you see on TV and you go like, that person's never held a hammer. And you have <laughs> to care about that in your advertising. I mean, my own beef, which you know, is that I, uh, I fly fish and I cannot stand the bad fly fishing I see people doing it all <laughs> wrong, you know, because just because the film crew said, oh yeah, go stand in that stream and wave a pole, which is one of the jokes about fly fishing, standing in the water and waving a rod. But, you know, clearly not fishing. Because when you fish, you look like you're fishing and I can tell. So I think that, you know, ad agencies have to be careful because we get disconnected from, I don't know, the actual use of the product. And we have to honor that the people who use a product give a shit about that stuff. You know, they'll notice when the line is not moving the way it would on that fly rod or when a guy is welding badly or, you know, right. faking that you know, right. stuff.
1: But the other thing that this conversation led me to bring up again is what mm-hmm. is becoming another perennial topic, and that's differentiation versus distinctiveness. We need a special tone.
0: Bing, bing, differentiation
1: <laughs> versus distinctiveness. <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> Sound effects for us. Well, and you ran into it this so this time It's an interesting example, right? And it, it, it suggests, somebody suggested that they both have their value. And that this one was a suggestion of, I think that differentiation is worth more than distinctiveness, but that distinctiveness is easier to achieve. And I don't quite agree with that, but I do think... I'm coming around to their thing as a mix.
1: Now, do we need to briefly back up and define each? I actually think that's part of the problem is that I don't know if there is a accepted, mm-hmm. well-articulated definition of them. And maybe there is, and I haven't seen it.
0: I don't know if there is. And actually, I'm becoming more and more disconnected from firm definitions because so much of what we deal with in marketing mm. has ambiguity about it. And the sure. more we try to define it specifically, the less value it has. So I tend to look at the two in kind of these broad strokes of distinct, Distinctiveness is that stuff by which people recognize your product. They get used to the visual language you use to represent it. They get used to all those things that make, you know, for example, in a store, you walk into the chip section and you look up and you see Doritos and you recognize them because of the package. And that's distinctiveness right there. But there are other ways that distinctiveness affects things. Differentiation for me, I've always pulled directly out of the book positioning that it's about where your product is resides in the customer's mind Mm -hmm. and the process of differentiation is one of helping make that stronger but it's kind of a negotiation between the brand and the customer because you have to start with where will my product be allowed to reside in their mind and Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. A lot of companies don't do that. A lot of companies, I think, start off with the idea that differentiation is I'm going to pick different things about my product and that's going to win me the day. (laughs) You know, that's
1: not so, you know, lovely. You know, and you you had a point about that, about, you know, when you say I'm fastest. Well, exactly. So I'm kind of thinking that we have a Maslow hierarchy of marketing Mm -hmm. attributes Mm -hmm. and, you know, you have to decide which way is up. But I think distinctiveness and immediate standing out because of packaging or visual language or physical attributes so to me those are immediate and obvious Mm -hmm. on site Mm -hmm. there's no debate I have a red package you have a you know yellow package and it's obvious this is really why the previous discussion was a good segue for me is because decoration versus functionality wallpaper versus plumbing If it's Mm -hmm. wallpaper and it looks beautiful, slam dunk, it's beautiful. Done. And also it's harder for your competition to copy that, right? I mean they can, but it's harder because you already occupy that space.
0: Well, actually you have some better copyright and trademark laws right. that you know, functions get really
1: hard to protect that way. Yeah, you have some patentable function things, but yeah, you know, God I it, think that's an excellent point. So exactly, you know, this is the point I was kind of and, and I think mm-hmm. you said it really well, is that when it comes to that kind of differentiation, then it requires evidence to prove it. And because evidence to prove something takes so long, it needs like latitude to do it. It also becomes a matter of claims and my word against theirs. And Mm -hmm. it kind of gets pushed down in the funnel that top Mm -hmm. of the funnel is distinctiveness. Lower down in the funnel is differentiation. If you get to that point, (laughs) now to the credit of the folks who came up with distinctive versus differentiation, I think, I believe they did say that distinctiveness is easier to protect that once you have it, you kind of can protect it and it's harder to copy. Whereas the functionality, even if people may not have it, they can claim to have it, they will have it in six months. It becomes a little bit of a gray area. So I generally see distinctiveness as top of the funnel, immediately obvious. And because it is immediately obvious, it also has more bearing to the identity of the buyer. And therefore it's more appealing to B2C rather than B2B. Whereas differentiation, because it's functionality and because the cell cycle can be longer, it's a little bit more of a B2B not exclusively, but a little bit more, and it's lower down in the funnel. So that's
0: that's how I see it. I agree with all that in general. I think part of the challenge here is that, like if somebody said, which is more important, distinctiveness or differentiation, my answer is yes. Yeah, absolutely. Because you really can't fully dispense with either. And every situation of sales channel, point of sale, website use, you know, all that stuff is going to require different types of distinctiveness or limit what kind of differentiation you might be able to help get across. And I think, uh, you know, so I think it's actually a much, I think the really good thing is to add distinction in. It's a very, very important truth that was being ignored as all these consultants ran around saying, oh no, it's all about differentiation. And we owe Eric and Ehrenberg Bass a tremendous debt. For having brought it to our attention like wait a minute this distinctive <laughs> stuff is really important um right, and that's a right. really big thing on the other hand you know you can build differentiation and good different differentiated advantages and where you go what i tend to look at it as is i think differentiation has to be a whole result right that there's this idea that when you bring a bunch of parts together they sometimes become a whole that's far more than just those parts so when you bring those parts together, you get this hole and that people get a vision of what that is for them. You know, what does that mean for me? What does this product mean for me? So that a product, a car may not be a car. It might be their wheels for the mountain adventure or, mm. you know, mm. whatever that is. And I don't need to exaggerate that and get it into puffery and all that kind of weird place you can go. I mean, seriously, if you want to go skiing, hiking, fishing, camping, you ought to have four wheel drive. And you need a car that's rugged enough for that. And, but you want it to be, you know, you have all sorts of things. And when you get a whole car, you know, right now I have an Explorer and I love the way it fits for all of us. And don't ask me to call out specific features. I can't exactly say that other than the whole thing works for me and it works really well. So I think differentiation has a little bit of that problem. I do think that it means that research into the two is going to be very hard that because distinctiveness is clearer, it's a little bit easier to evaluate and to do research into. Differentiation, like I said, I think it really starts in the mind of the customer. So no matter what the company says, the problem isn't, what does the company say? The problem is, come on, what's really going on in the mind of the customer and that's a lot harder to find out.
1: I actually think that the taxonomy as it exists is not helpful mm-hmm. because distinctiveness works for me. I understand what that is. Mm-hmm. But differentiation applies to everything. Yeah. Distinctiveness is itself a differentiator in my mind. So I think that I would have been much happier if we talked about mm-hmm. function, form, mm-hmm. cosmetics and those are the three or four that I have on my brewing Maslow Triangle of my marketing attributes. Because I think, you know, if you can assume functionality is there, then you can think about form. And if you can assume form is there, then you can talk about cosmetics and, you know, visual look and feel. And maybe there are like more more steps in the middle. But you can grow your way into things that are less a question of a function of the product and more the way you experience it. I would have liked the taxonomy to be defined that way. And then mm-hmm. the whole thing could be differentiation. Not sure if that's possible at this point, but, you know.
0: I don't know if it's possible either, but I, but I really agree with the sense that there was an advance in the late, late aughts, you know, like 2008 to 2007, where a Milwaukee tool came out with lithium ion batteries. There's all kinds of advantages for lithium ion, but there were two fundamental advantages and they didn't know how to choose between them. One is that you could get the same power in a lighter, lighter weight battery. Mm. Or the other is you could get more power in a battery of the same weight and then there were a bunch of advantages such as you didn't have to always running it out before you recharged it and so forth and so on but the thing that they blew in a lot of ways is they came out with the battery didn't get clear about what its function was and then made it look just like all their other batteries ah. so there wasn't anything that made their new thing distinctive. And in that sense, maybe distinction and differentiation go together. You know, your differences need to have something representing them Mm -hmm. because so much of what is an advantage for products these days is hidden. You know, I mean, God, in your world of computers, right? I mean, I've done a few things since dealing with tools where I go back and try to work with computers. I'm like, oh, Lordy, the exciting thing here is that the CPU processes this bit in a different way tee doo you know, I, I can't visualize that. I can't, you know, or what is it Apple's new M chips do? They dispensed with the local cash so that you, you know, they took a whole step out of that, which I have enough understanding to say, oh, that's pretty cool, pretty interesting. But for everybody else I've talked with about it, you can see it just goes right past him. And how do you talk about that kind of hidden stuff, this magic behind it? It's it's a struggle. But when you have a battery, you could really make it different in some way. And there, use distinction in its design to help strengthen your differentiation. And those two could have gone together and nobody did and it took years. And now pretty much all the uh, tool batteries are lithium ion, but through it, customers never comprehended
1: what the real advantage is. Uh, but you know, back to something we were talking before the show, and we might want to end with this new thread, was the beer commercial of taste great, less filling. <laughs> and, and it reminds me that that was some brilliant branding and brilliant mm-hmm. having the cake and eat it too and mm-hmm. covering all of that. So that, you know, that's probably an opportunity missed for Milwaukee to do it like that.
0: In fact, it was a mix of differentiation and distinction. Mm-hmm. You know, they had a different beer and they figured out how to talk about having a different beer with a tagline that, was just, I mean, everybody got it. I mean, I was telling you about the later commercial in that that run of commercials where Rodney Dangerfield with some babe on his arm walks by the bar and the door is open and they're yelling inside the bar. You know, tastes great, last fella, tastes great.
1: <laughs> he goes like, Hey,
0: babe, this is my kind of place. You know, and you know, with all of his misogyny, but still, um, yeah, it was yeah. funny because it was so clear what the whole thing was about. That was brilliant distinction that they got out of that execution out of that
1: tagline all of those things and it was based on something different about their beer right excellent so on that note we can conclude this episode twenty second. so thank you everybody for listening really appreciate this please do what marketing people do share comment etc thank you thank you shaheen all right take care everybody that's it
0: for this episode of the marketing podcast Every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of X. Thank you for listening.